0: on the verge on the verge is presented by callaway golf every year callaway just keeps pushing and pushing the boundaries when it comes to driver technology but this year get ready to push your game further than humanly possible because the new epic flash driver with flash face technology is shattering the idea of how fast a driver can be it's callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence What's that mean? Using machine learning, Callaway's supercomputer, yes, they have one of those, was able to test, refine, tweak, and retest over 15,000 different faces to find the fastest one. That's flash face technology. These same AI calculations would take your laptop 34 years to complete. When you engineer a driver face with artificial intelligence and pair it with revolutionary jailbreak technology, it transforms the way a driver is made. Yet again... And it's not just in a driver. AI created Flashface in the fairy woods, too. It's not just another fast driver. This is the future of distance technology. Learn more at CallawayGolf.com slash AI. Welcome to On the Verge. Today is uh, going to be an awesome show if you're into understanding what it takes to be an entrepreneur uh, on multiple levels, because he didn't just dominate one market. He's dominated, like, 10 which is quite remarkable he doesn't stick with one thing he dabbles around and that's the kind of that's the kind of mindset that I want to pick the brain of so today we're going to speak with the chairman of the board and CEO of the Hillman Group a serial entrepreneur Doug Cahill Doug how are you buddy I'm great good to see you well thank you for taking the time out of your schedule you are one busy man you uh you've you've dabbled in rifles healthcare among, and, and pet food, you haven't had any particular one business that you attack. So that tells me that you have a system in your head of how to make something successful. What is it, when, or where did you kind of go in your early part of your professional career where all of a sudden you kind of figured out and the light bulb went off on the Cahill machine of how you could make something, whatever it is, better?
1: Yeah, it probably goes back to most things go back to, you know, where you grew up. I grew up in a really small town in Ohio, mm-hmm. St. Henry, Ohio, uh, one red light, two bars, <clears throat> one church. And it's uh, just an awesome place to grow up. And I remember I asked my dad, my my, my father was the club champion at the at the country club he was a, a you know four year starter at Xavier basketball player superstar really natural gifted athlete but in 1968 uh, I was 8 years old his kidneys stopped and just completely shut down and he was an only child and at that point there really was no other option um you know, you, you had to have a sibling that matched to uh, transplant and so the closest kidney or dialysis machine was two and a half hours away. And we had no idea. I mean, my mom, my brother, my sister and I, we didn't know what to do. And so um, for about a year, he went on the dialysis machine. And three times a week, we would, one of us would go with mom and it would be a, a trek. I mean, it would oh, be an yeah. 18-hour day. And um, his company bought the first dialysis kidney machine in the United States that went into a home and we figured out how to run it and, and, uh, no nurse, no doctor, no nothing. Wow! And so I think for me, you know, being able to understand perspective at an early age, mm-hmm. because when your dad's going to die and you really believe that, that you're blessed that he's, that he's still here. Um, I think it makes all the other stuff just noise. Yeah. And so he actually passed away in 79. Um, uh, so he lived 11 years, and no one had ever lived longer than five Wow! back then. So we were just really lucky. Um, and there was no way that our family could do it without the town. So you had 2,500 people in the town and everybody would help no mm. matter what. So, I mean, I think for me, having the ability to, <clears throat> excuse me, keep things in perspective at an early age. And then I remember when I was going to college, I said to dad, um, I want to run something. What should I go into? And um, he said, well, sales. I said, no, I don't want to sell something. I want to run something. And he said, Doug, if you want to learn how to run a business, you got to understand how to satisfy a customer. And I'll never forget it because I didn't get it at the time. He said, you have to figure out how to take care of a customer by working horizontally through an organization. So you got to understand customer service and engineering and marketing and manufacturing and sales. You have to work sideways to satisfy a customer. And if you figure that out, you'll learn how to run something because everybody thinks vertically. And I, I just remember thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about, Wow! but I, I started in sales out of college. And again, nothing happens until you sell something. And that really was so true. And and so I've used that throughout my life and the way I've run businesses, which is nothing ever happens until you sell something. And then everything else is around the customer. And so I think the perspective mm-hmm. and I think him saying sales, because I remember when he said go into sales, I'm like, I don't want to go into sales. I want to run something. Yeah. So I think that was probably key for me. It's it's.
0: Always fascinating because, you, like that particular moment in time, you had no idea that that's what you were going to be getting. Zero that that profound uh, lesson in life, and obviously to go through it while dealing with such a tumultuous and, and difficult moment, definitely probably seals the uh, the the grenade, so to speak, of all of the passion that it takes to to do that. Because there's a lot of people that talk about wanting to do something, right? There are many people that take action and is there, was there that moment where you were proverbially on the airplane and you just had to jump and trust the parachute? Where was that moment where you were like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance, I'm going to see if I can do this, and then uh, trust the parachute when you jump?
1: Yeah, I think I probably had a couple of those, but I remember um, I was doing really well at the company and, and, and having a lot of fun, and, and at 29, the CEO of a $3 billion company decided to put me as VP of sales. And uh, there was no clue. I had no clue. I had no idea. I was not ready for this job, nor have I been ready for just about any I've had. But seriously, I was way over my head. But what I remember is I had eight regional managers, probably 55 to 60 years old. I had 163 salespeople. And I'm 29. And I would sit in a meeting the first week or two, and I would say something. And I would say to myself, damn, that did not sound like something a VP sales just (laughs) said. Shit, I better read a book or figure this out right? Yeah. So, so I got into this book of the month club and if you want to screw up your golf swing or <laughs> run a business go to the book of the month and, and I was trying to figure out how to be a vice president of sales and I'll never forget the CEO we went out and played golf and we, we got hooked up with the CEO of Merrill Lynch and, and our president and he and I took on and I remember we were at Blind Brook I doubled the first hole I doubled the second hole and he said to me on the third tee, he said, Kale, this is not an exit interview. Get your get your shit together. And and I ended up playing pretty well from there. I shot seventy one after being four over. But but he looked at me and he said, Hey, how's it going? And I, you know, said to him, Hey, it's going fine. And I said, but you know, I, I said, I don't know that I'm ready for this. And he said, Listen, I put you in this job because I know you can do it. You only have to be you. And that doesn't mean, young man, you don't have to improve. But don't try to be anybody else because it's not going to work. Yeah. And and I have to tell you, Virgil, that stuck big time, super glue to my head and my body and my mind. Because at that point, when you really think about it, it gets pretty easy. Yeah. You be you. Doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't improve. But if you if you don't try to be someone else, then then you, you you know you've got true north, right? Yeah. You, you're, you're centered. Yeah. But if, if you're trying to be somebody else or trying to act like a vice president or sound like a vice president, mm-hmm. I guarantee you it doesn't work because I watched it absolutely full flaps for two or three weeks and didn't have <laughs> a clue what I was
0: doing. Well, that's interesting because I have two things that, that crossed my mind off of that. One is I believe it was um, Richard Branson who said, if a great opportunity comes – and you don't think that you can do it? Say yes and try to f- and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so never be afraid, because generally speaking, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about brain surgery or nuclear science, there might be a higher level of education Correct. required. But generally speaking, if you care about whatever it is, whether it's the the product, the people that you're serving, all of the above, et cetera. But I mean, if you care and you show up and I haven't seen many people struggle. Yeah,
1: it's a good point. I think the thing I learned back to the don't be afraid, I'll give an example from, I can remember from 29, I think it was 31, I got my first GM president of a division and it was a big division, $400 million global business, had plants in South Africa, Brazil, 12 plants in Europe, five plants in the U.S., and I was not prepared for that job, obviously, but I didn't understand a balance sheet. I, I came through the, the marketing side, sales, mm-hmm. and I really didn't. And I think back to the Branson thing. To me, what what's what always worked for me, and I, I'm not saying this is for everybody, but when I walked into that job, I went to the, my CFO, chief financial officer, and I said, I do not understand a balance sheet. I don't know how cash flow works, and I need you to help me. And so he said, well, how the hell did you get this job if you don't understand balance sheet? I said, listen, I have no clue, but I am here. You work for me. We're on the same team. You need, to, you need to teach me this. And so I think the key to saying I can do it or yes is to not, you know, you bullshit your friends. I'll bullshit mine. Let's not bullshit each other. I mean, it's really important. Yeah. That And, and think about the CFO. He was probably 25 years older than me. He knew I didn't know. But as soon as I said, I don't understand it, he went from, I'll prove this kid didn't deserve this job, to, you know what? He needs me. Yeah, And I did. There was no clue. I mean, I can remember just going, wow, I remember going through class in college, but I didn't know how this really worked. And now, I got live ammo here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> you know, we got currencies, we got, we got time zones, we got, I mean... We were running. I was in charge of this joint venture in South Africa, in Joburg, the year that, that Mandela got out of prison. Oh. There was a lot going on. Oh, yeah. And so you, there was no way that I could be the president and GM at thirty one, thirty two, unless other people stepped in and offset what I didn't know. But the key was I had to tell them yeah. I didn't know. Because yeah. if I didn't, they were going to prove to me I didn't know.
0: Yeah, and it also, when you demonstrate... That you, even as the G- G- GM, you demonstrate that you're not perfect. It's like a quarterback going into the the huddle and saying, "Hey, man, I can't I can't make the pass if you don't block Lawrence Taylor. Right? I need you, and if if you can't stop the middle linebacker, I can't do it either. So I think that's what the great quarterbacks. I've had the opportunity to do a couple of interviews with Neil O'Donnell and Kerry mm-hmm. Collins, and they just talk about you know the reason why they everybody comes together in a in a huddle in the NFL is because they all there know that this Derrick Henry can't be the greatest running back if the offensive line doesn't do a good job. Right. And the quarterback can't get the recognition if the offensive line doesn't do a good job, but you know, probably just like a good wife, the most underappreciated people on the field are both lines. Yes. You know, and So when you show that, I always look back to like Colin Powell's book where he talks about you can't ask somebody for their hand to lead them until you can touch their heart. So you spend some time touching their heart and they're going to reach their hand right out for you. So you demonstrating the need makes him feel like we're a team. He can't just come in here and tell me what to do. He actually asked me what to do or how to do it because he doesn't know. That then probably led to an awesome cohesion because everybody realized that just because you're the GM, you're not taking the stance that you're better than anybody. We're all here together.
1: What I found there, too, is kind of scary. Most of the people in the business that were on my team didn't understand the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. I thought I was the only one. Oh, interesting. And so it became a little bit of a clinic where, okay— Frank, you're gonna you're gonna help all of us understand this because if we don't learn how to make money and create value for our shareholders, we're probably not going to be a team. Yeah. And so it was bigger than just me. Once I kind of opened the kimono and said, "Hey guys, I don't <laughs> have a clue." Yeah. Um, I knew how to sell. I knew how to lead. I knew how to, you know, cheerlead. I knew how to take care of the little things, but I didn't have a clue on the balance sheet. Interesting. Another thing that when you, when you were talking about trying to beat you,
0: I haven't been on the tour as a coach in 10 years. And, but when I was out there with the guys that I was with, that was in the Tiger dominance era of like, we've probably not seen anybody in sport dominate like Tiger dominated for that window of time. And they all felt compelled to be Tiger. I got to be working on my game like Tiger. I got to get my swing like Tiger. Oh, and once I get it good, I got to tear it down and do something different because I got to get, keep improving and I watched it derail, so many people. And Snedeker and I would get in some pretty heated talks because I'm like Brent. You gotta remember something. You're not Tiger Woods. Stop trying to be Tiger. Well, I gotta get longer. I gotta hit it. I gotta be able to hit it closer to the pin if I'm gonna beat Tiger. Said, well, yeah, okay. But just keep in mind, you're like the greatest putter ever. <laughs> Especially from mid-range, yep. it's repulsive. No, it, How it, it's, many putts he'll make from 20 to 30 feet? Well, I mean, even it makes the other guys on the tour kind of like, I hate I hate watching this. Why would you tax your weaknesses so heavily so that you can have shorter putts when you are really take all the risk out and be Brant Snedeker? And every time he goes on a great run, I shouldn't say every time, but probably a large percentage of times, he goes on a great run of play. It is right after he either has the microphone in his face and somebody says, Brent, you're one of the th- three best players in the world without a major. Is this going to be your year? What are you doing? Get ready for the Masters, etc." That just like flips a button. and I got I to get better at everything. And then he goes and tries to get a little longer, works out harder, works on a swing so he can hit it both directions. And then all of a sudden, that's not Brent Snedeker. Mm-hmm. Brent Snedeker just draws it hits it into the middle of the green until the putts start falling. And then it's like it's a disease, a positive disease. As soon as that first putt falls in, he feels like he hit two iron out of a divot to four feet. Right. Right? And it just trickles out. And when he embraces being Brandt and all these guys, Brooks is probably the best version of, hey, man, I can't be anybody else other than me. And I really like my chances of me beating you. And that's what it takes. And Tiger was the best version of Tiger, and he just placed a level of intimidation, or maybe even more than anything, he placed a level of insignificance in others that they felt like they had to be something greater than they were yep. to beat him. And it was true to some extent, but at the end of the day, the only chance people had to beat him was just being the best version of themselves. They couldn't beat Tiger right. and being Tiger. And that's a that's a powerful lesson for every in almost every genre uh, is. You have to hone your own craft. And if there's anything that you can take away from the greats is the process they went through. And to me, that's what I spent all my time talking about in golf here. It's like, hey, man, maybe Tiger Woods were all around. Roy right. McIlroy's running around. But you're the, only, you're the only Julian Maxwell here. You're the only Toby Wilt here. So why don't you just get be real good at being you? Yeah, there, Was there ever a moment, especially in golf, because you played college golf too, where was that moment where you went from a junior golfer to like a college golf. What was that moment where you, you stepped out of just high school wing it to like, Hey man, I can do this. And at a very high level.
1: Yeah. I, <laughs> it, it it's funny because I can remember my dad and mom dropped me off at Bowling Green and we were very, very close. And, uh, and it was a fall match. And somehow one of my early matches, um, I get paired with Joey Cinderlar, And that's the reason, Joey's the reason I'm in business today. Because it was like today, it was probably a three club win. And very seldom have I ever played a round of golf where I couldn't critique it and say I could have done three or four better. I don't know that I could have hit, I could have scored any better. I just careered it. Mm -hmm. And I shot 78 in a three or four club win probably. And Sindler shot sixty eight, and I called my dad and I said, "Dad, he's playing a game I am not familiar <laughs> with." <laughs> and Dad said, "Study hard, young man." Yep. And and I, at that point, I you know I knew I'd gone from because I, I was the lowest guy on the team that day of our team, yeah, uh, which wasn't saying a lot, you know, tallest midget at seventy eight, <laughs> but but he I you know I'd be one ten. And I'd try to boom something up there. And he'd take a six iron and hit a shot that I didn't even know exist. And he would just bump a a little six iron under the wind. It'd take two bounces and stop by the pin. I'm like, he hit a six iron. I mean, (laughs) it was unimaginable. So for me, that's when I knew I could play relative to the team I was on. But I also knew that there was n- I, I was not familiar with the game he was playing. Yeah, interesting. And, and that, that was when I said, "Hey, you know, I'm pretty good for Saint Henry, Ohio, but not not Joey Cinderella, not a-. and and think about it, Joey's, you know, great player, but not one of the top, you know, twenty five, fifty. Yeah, no kidding. But he had a game that was just uh, that was the best thing that ever happened to my business career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. You know, golf provides such a unique uh, atmosphere and arena in business, not just in sport, but in yep. business as well. How much has golf played a role in your success in the business world, whether it be being able to play someplace with an, another business person that really you got a chance to gel and bond that it made a huge difference? Or how have you used golf to be successful?
1: It's uh, I can't even explain it because it's it's happened so many times. You know, you really do... I think one of the things about golf is is you you do get to uh, you can understand a lot about somebody in four or five hours um, on a golf course. Yeah. There's just a lot of things that happen where people show you who they are, but but I remember um, I was I started in sales and I and I was in Atlanta and just worked as hard as I could. Did really well. Took a bunch of business from this company and um, and. They, and my company decided to sell the chemical division. This is a long story, but I'll make it yeah. short. I was 24 years old, didn't know a damn thing about it, and thought, well, I don't want to be part of that. The company that I'd stole all the business from wanted me to go to work for them, Olin Corporation. So I have this interview, and um, we go out to play golf, snap finger. And uh, I three-putted the last hole for 71, played really good and beat the the regional manager who was interviewing me. And back then I was hitting it a mile. And, and, and so he decided I should go up to Connecticut, Stanford. And mm-hmm. I remember going into a room and there were seven people in the glass room to interview me at one time. That was the thing back in 1984. Huh. We're going to do a, 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 everybody's got a role. There's going to be a really nice guy. There's going to be a prick. There's going to be, you know, an interrogator. There's going to be a cheerleader. It's just, that's how they did it. Yeah. And so I walk into this room. And, um, I'll never forget. Jerry says to me, he said, I don't understand why you're here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, um, we don't hire non-chemical engineers for our chemical salespeople. I said, well, he said, do you have a chemical engineer degree? I said, no. And he said, I, well, he looked around at the other six guys, you know, he was the head guy. Why, why the hell is he here? Yeah. He said, so why are you here? I said, well, I don't know. You guys asked me to come, but I said, in the last two and a half years, I've taken $16 million of business away from your chemical engineers because they obviously don't know how to sell. I said, chemicals are chemicals, Jerry. And the way to sell chemicals is you take people to play golf and take them to dinner and understand their family and get to know them. And I said, I've been to Augusta, the Kentucky Derby and the U.S. Open with my customers, and I'm sure your chemical engineers are talking about some bond or some chemical, but they don't know how to sell. And that could be why we took 16 million bucks from you over the last three years. And I'll never forget Jerry gave him credit because he became a friend after I stayed there for 14 years. But they, had, they always believed they had to have a chemical engineer as a sales rep. And if you think about the strength of a chemical engineer, it would not be selling. selling. <laughs> and they got killed. And so I was able to, ironic, that was the company I ended up being VP of sales. Yeah. You think we had chemical engineers as a sales? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but no. that, that was, it was golf. That broke those. So if you're selling the same thing the other guy is, which in the most places you are product-wise, yeah. you have to win ties because it's pretty, it's pretty close. Oh, yeah. And the way you win ties is you understand their family. You've spent a moment with them. You've you know you you've spent time with them outside of the environment of the desk where I'm on one side, you're on the other. And um, Goff's done that my entire life um, yeah. just in different ways.
0: That's so interesting the way you put that because, you know, golf is an icebreaker, mm-hmm. you know, because you you get yourself outside and now all of your senses. And they even know that most of it's occurring in the subconscious. You know, you're if you're eating. So you got the you know, if you had anything to eat or you're just smelling food, you're seeing the beauty, you're feeling the grass and the golf clubs, you're hearing the birds and the wind blowing through the trees there's a lot of things going on in the subconscious that really kind of take the edge off the of day, and then you throw in competition. Even if it's light, people love to compete, and then you're you're playing the hardest thinking game in the world. Yeah. While while being out on a beautiful golf course, in four and a half five hours, that's what makes golf so. That's why it's never gone anywhere. It might have its peaks and its valleys, but golf is. Where else can you spend four or five hours of time with family, friends, or you know companions in business, and that people can't wait to keep going?
1: No, I mean it's, and I think the other thing is you know you take tennis. You and I go play tennis. We might have a match if we're close, but if we're not, it's kind of tough. With golf, it's the ultimate equalizer with handicap, and yeah. even though people will have a bad day and they'll feel bad. Nobody cares, yeah. Right, as long as they're playing at a pace, nobody cares, and you can give somebody two shots aside and have a hell of a match. Yep, and that's what I I love about it is that it is the ultimate mental challenge, but it's the ultimate equalizer too. In that, you know, the whole handicap system set up that way. Yeah, I, I think that makes it great. Yeah, no
0: doubt about it. And to me, when I when I think of how golf and how you use that is so interesting because if you get four hours of of time with somebody, you're going to get a chance to see if they cheat, you're going to get a chance to see their level of integrity. You're going to see how well they, if they're your partner, what kind of a partner are they? If if they're an adversary, if it's, you know, you and another guy get versus that guy, you get a chance to see who you're competing against. And usually in the world that you're living in, there's a lot of alpha dogs. So you're going to get a chance to see behind the curtain Mm -hmm. for free, so to speak. And I believe that that plays a huge role if you're shrewd in reading people of where you're going to be heading within that business, too. And I think that that's that's a very valuable thing. That's what I try to pass on to the the kids here at the golf team. I said, man, there's a really good chance that you're going to be able to use your quality of golf to make more money in business than you could playing on TV. So the worst-case scenario here is that you're going to use this game for the rest of your life for fun and success. Yeah. This is the worst possible outcome. And they don't. sometimes they don't believe me or they're so absolutely driven to be the best player that they can be that they don't want to even think about the possibility that they're not going to make it. But ultimately, I've taught 185 kids to play college golf, mm. and only one of them played on TV or the PGA Tour that's brand and then there's five of them that got to the what is now the corn Ferry Tour and not good enough. Mm-hmm. So let's say that that six professional golfers that made a reasonable living and did it for an extended period of time out of 185 <laughs> that's like three percent or two and a half percent three percent. It's a hard game, but I think that that's what makes the game so great for businesses because it's business is hard yeah and you, you know you could be cruising along five hundred par. And in one fell swoop, and not a bad decision, not a bad golf swing, not anything you did wrong, and it can turn your round negative in a hurry, just like anything else can. Yeah. And that's that's why I love to pass that message on to the kids here, is because I didn't make it either. You know, I, I wanted to play. I wanted to see how good I could be. I learned real quick. I'm good, but I'm not that good. Right. And but I mean, I get a chance to teach golf all day. And help people with a game that they love, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. So it, it's that's why I think golf is so important. It's like a, it's a trump card for business for sure. Yeah,
1: you know it's funny. The last um, like three weeks ago, Mike, Chris, my son, and and uh, Terry, my wife, and Chelsea and Paige, the six of us went down to the honors mm-hmm. and stayed in the cabin. And we had so much fun with just the six of us. Yeah. Everybody's at a different place on their game, but it didn't matter because we could play shamble. We could play scramble. We could, you know, go to the teaching center. And and it's not just business, right? Yeah. It's also a great way for the family to have fun, whether it's, you know, like you, you know how it is when you get out there with your young boys. Yeah. I, I'll i never forget that. I mean, that, that I cannot wait to to have, you know, hopefully be blessed with grandchildren because yeah. it's just going to be ridiculous. Oh, yeah, and you'll be at a time in your life where that'll <laughs> exactly. be be—you'll be full steam. I'll be on the up. back nine. <laughs> you'll be on the back nine. Oh, that's so true,
0: so true. When you're in the, in the business world, what is it that drives you? Is it the art of the deal, the deal that you're getting ready to put together that drives you? Or is it making uh, all these unique businesses thrive so that you can s- – it's own, your own personal uh, goals to see if your particular system that you have in your mind about what it takes to, to make it work keeps working. What is it that drives you every day?
1: You know, for me, it, it's what I love is, t- so my, my strength, if I have any in business, is that I spend a great deal of time on the environment that my team is in and I make sure that that environment is absolute ideal for them to do the best they can. And there are different kinds of leaders. And and the great thing that I've learned over the years is there are three or four different styles of leadership that can work. Mm -hmm. So there's not one and don't, don't think there is because I've watched leaders that do it very differently than myself and they're extremely successful, but it goes back to what kind of person they are. And, I really focus on what does my team need to be successful, and my job is to create the environment, and I'll never forget, early part of my career, I got the chance to meet Sam Walton, and and I remember he'd always have this big chief yellow tablet, and I said to him, I said, Sam, how do you do what you do? with all these people. Cause back then he probably had, I don't know, 800 stores or something. Wow. But back then that was a lot, right? Yeah. He's got 4,000 in the U S now they do. But, but I said to him, I don't know how you do this. Cause he was in a small group and he, and he had said, you know, any questions. And, uh, I said, how is it that you do what you do with all the people you have responsibility to all these stores? And he just, he took the yellow tablet and he drew a line and he said, I can influence about, 10 or 12 people myself, and you know, that would be his team. But he said, for me, I go to the bottom, which is at the store every week with my plane, and I help the troops at the bottom feel good about Walmart and what we're doing because my people can't get to them. Yeah. So I focus on 10 or 12 people getting the message and let them filter that throughout the organization. And then I go to the store level. He didn't use the word bottom, I'm sure. But to the store level associates, which is who sees the customer every day. And I help them and try to see if I can meet the two in the middle. Uh, And I think the point of that is the job of the leader is to create the environment so people can do the best job they can in the easiest way. And what you find about most businesses is that it's just too damn hard to satisfy a customer. There's too much bullshit that's process-driven that has nothing to do with selling something that people are spending time on thinking it's important because one function thinks they're stronger than the other. And the job is, what's the easiest way to take care of a customer? And what's the best way for me as a leader to get an environment where everybody can go to work, have a ball, be successful and go home with something left in the tank for their family. Yeah, And believe it or not, that's my focus.
0: It's, it's interesting because that mirrors almost identically uh, one of my recent podcasts with Dan Crockett. Crocky. Crockett. Crockett kind of does the exact that? same thing. He was all about creating the environment for his people to sell mortgages. Yep. And to make it the best that they could possibly be. I mean, that's so, this is like part of what I love about doing a podcast is because that's no different essentially than what I'm doing for the team here and what exactly. I do teaching golf. And it's no different than what Dan did. And it's no, actually no different than what Kerry Collins did when he went into the huddle. You know, there's just a way about it that uh, no matter what it is that you're doing, there are just some fundamentals. And generally speaking, when you're dealing with people, it's the ability to communicate and make people feel like they're important.
1: Yeah. And I think most people believe, I don't know why we think as leaders, people can't handle the truth because when you're brutally honest with them to the point where they say, God, I can't believe you just said that they can handle it Yeah. because then they know where they are. They're so used to being BS'd, Yeah. and they're so tired of it that if you just say, Hey, listen, you know what? Our fill rate right now sucks. We're not taking great care of our customers. And it's not your fault. It's our fault. We haven't given you the resources you need to do it. Here's what we're going to do on our side to change so that you guys can take care of the customer. But let's not say it's good. Yeah. Let's not put graphs together that look like we're winning. We suck right now. Mm-hmm. And we got to get better. And it's amazing how people respond to reality when you're being honest with them versus spinning it. They're so used to leaders spinning it. Yeah. And it's like his lips are moving or her lips are moving, I know he's lying. I know he's <laughs> BSing That's it. Right. And people just they it's almost like they you know it's like scratching a chalkboard. It drives them crazy. Yeah. So my message is not always fun yeah. because it's brutally honest, but but at least everybody says Gosh, it's refreshing. Yeah. We we are where we are, or we aren't where we aren't, and and let's go from here. And I think that's people respond to somebody calling it the way it is. And too many leaders have this insecurity and think, "Oh my god, if I say we're not doing well, then that must mean I'm not a good leader." Yeah. And so then everybody says, "You can't tell Doug cuz you know, he's he's believing something else." That don't no don't give him that news, and then yeah. everybody starts sugarcoating it, and that's the worst thing that can happen to a culture. No doubt about it. The big ma- time
0: when the manipulation of facts to either soothe uh, a person has a tendency to be to get angry, so that they don't have to deal with the conflict and confrontation. That's something I wanted. To, I was interested in, in asking you about, which is one of the bigger challenges in life is constructive conflict. And the ability to have two different viewpoints and talk it out and then come to some kind of common ground and move forward is becoming a lost art. Mm. And I was listening to an interview with Kobe Bryant who keeps on showing up on my radar screen as one of the greatest ever at something. Although I was never really a big follower of Kobe, because once Jordan retired, I kind of waited. I, I left basketball with Jordan and kind of picked it back up with LeBron. And in between that time was almost all of Kobe's dominance. Didn't really pay attention that much to it. But he, they talk about how much of a, of a killer he is. And when he's at practice, he's brutally honest. And he says that the key to being, the key for him was to be able to have straight up conflict, get it out in the open as fast as possible, as real as possible, so that we spend zero extra seconds dealing with stuff that's not important. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really profound, especially because I don't really, didn't really follow his story that much, that he is, he's that way. And I would probably say that conflict is one of the bigger crossroads for leadership is the people who know how to have it and pick it up make things better are the superstars. And the ones that either avoid it or ruin it are the ones that end up being the one that sinks the ship. Wouldn't you say?
1: It's hard. I have to be honest. That, that took me a while as I, as I made mistakes through my career. Because as a leader, when there's conflict between your team, you feel responsible. Mm-hmm. So you just want to make it go away initially when you're insecure and you don't understand the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, And and so I found myself doing that, which is, Oh, you guys are fine. You guys are fine. You know, kiss and make up, please. Yeah. Um, The other thing about conflict is that it tends to be one way in many CEOs world. Uh, I, I will I will be the one that decides conflict, and it will be a one-way, it won't be two-way. I think for conflict, to me, what I learned is I really had to bite my lip and just let people work through it because I would always try to jump in and either think I was helping, but I wasn't. Yeah. And that's really hard because you're watching this train wreck right in front of you, Yeah. but it has to happen, and the train has to come off the track for it to get back on yep. because if it doesn't come off, it's not going to work. And, and you know, what, what I, what I found do, what, what I found that I was doing wrong is that after that I would have one party come up to me and plea their case. And then I would have the other party try to plea the case. And I found myself being the judge and that's a huge mistake. So as soon as that happens, I learned over time Frank, don't come to me, go straight to Randy. Because I'm not going to be the referee here. Uh, I'm not going to play sides. If you two can't figure out how to work together, guess what? I'm going to have a team with different people. Because my team has to figure out how to work together, not with me. And that's hard.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you
1: really just want it to go away. Oh, yeah. You don't want them to fight. But you have to let them. And you have to be the one that not encourages it but basically is neutral so that you're not taking sides i think it's probably a bit like parenting yeah no kidding
0: (laughs) so true and were there any uh people in the business world that were your influences that you always turn to for advice and or a vision uh as you were growing up or even today i mean i'm sure you never stopped learning so i mean even today
1: yeah i there, there are always people that, you know, that help you along the way. I, I will say this. My father was such an amazing man and he was my best friend and yeah. we were so close. It was um, almost scary. Yeah. He was my best friend my whole life and, and he's still coaching me Yeah, and it's through what I watched and what I saw and what I learned and I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think that I'd be 59 and my father died when I was 19 and he's still coaching. Yep. Um, and I was so blessed to have, you know, a family and parents that, that, that taught me the right way. But, but he was so insightful in, in the dealing with people. And he was the head of an HR group for a huge company, but he was the best listener I have ever met. And and that's a tough skill as well, um, but he's still coaching me. And I, I didn't think I would bring my dad with me, coaching me for forty years after he passes away. But it, but he's there every day. The
0: greatest gift, right there.
1: It really is. Yeah, that's and I, awesome. I you know I wouldn't have guessed that.
0: That is impressive. That's the thing that I'm. Uh, that's what I don't know. You know I, I haven't lost my dad yet. I haven't really lost anybody in my family mm-hmm. yet, and I can't imagine that void. Yeah. Because it was pretty similar between myself and my dad.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: You know, so I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not looking forward to that day, but I'm always talking about the, f- and I talked to him about it. I'm like, hey, man, even when you pass away, it's like you're with me all the time anyway. Yeah. And that's like the spirit piece. You know, it's like they're, you're, they're so important to you. They're almost like on a cellular level that even when they're physically not here, they're still guiding you now. Totally. Yeah. That's the thing. I, that's how I think that I'm able to cope with the losses that I've had in my life is because I take that that viewpoint is that i just i take in people in my like almost like on a on a cellular level like i take i try my best to take what they're giving me and like own it so that when people make impact on me, even when I'm not around them, I'm still drawing from them. And one of the cool things about, like, I got this awesome facility here.
1: That's amazing.
0: And it's great. But the greatest gift that I have here is Ricky Bowers. Man, that guy is, he is so, such a unique leader. Comes at it from an old school mindset, but is so ahead of the game in understanding people and understanding what's going to happen. and he does, he's one of the most insightful people when it comes to preparing for anything. And I felt like I was good at preparing for people to get ready to play in a golf tournament. But he demonstrated a different level of peeling back the layer of the onion on preparation. And it's no different. He's a basketball guy too, you know. Basketball Wood, Wooden, and Coach K and Dean Smith—they all write these books, and it's just—it's very, they, it's very clear in their head. And you're taking it all, and they're like, wow, that's all going through your head at the exact same yep. time. But my goodness, it's uh, having great leadership is important, even when you're 46 for me, 59 for you, yep. to be around people that have been there and done that, even if it's two percent different than you. That's something you can break off and put in your front pocket.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I see. You know, back to your question, one of the things that I didn't also see coming when I was young is, and I, I think a lot of young people miss this opportunity. You can learn more from a jerk boss than you can sometimes from a, a really good boss. Yeah. And the reason you can learn more from a jerk boss, because you're gonna have one. Oh yeah. Is You get the visceral, not only of what you feel that's sticking to your ribs, but you watch others who are peers and you see how they feel. And so to me, everybody's looking for who's my mentor? Who can I learn from? I find the best learning I've ever had was watching someone do it wrong and the visceral feel that I couldn't get out of my stomach. Uh and watching others saying, "Oh man, I do not want to do that." I just I just witnessed and I wore that. I yeah. mean, it's on me. Yeah. So I think we 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 it'd be nice to have mentors that were were there at every turn. Uh-huh. But boy, don't miss the opportunity of that jerk boss because they are invaluable. Oh, you yeah. know, you, you don't want to become one, but you can learn from them.
0: Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. When uh when you've had the opportunity to uh, be in all these great positions, you've obviously met some really cool people. I love the story you told me about being in New Zealand and seeing Greg Norman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how did you end up? How did you meet Greg Norman? And uh, what kind of a what do you remember about Greg Norman?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know he was uh, at fifty nine. He was obviously a, a stud. I, you know, if, if we'd had a low spin ball back then, he'd have won twenty five more tournaments. Oh my, right? no kidding! I mean, he couldn't get to a back pin. No. Uh, but I always, I, mean, I was, I grew up in Ohio, so I'm a Nicholas fan from birth. Yep. And um, and I've always been a, a Jack fan. But Greg was, how could you not? He he was a beautiful player, and a, and just I loved Norman. So I. I was president of Winchester, and I went down to a celebrity quail hunt in Albany, Georgia. And there were two presidential suites, and it happened to be Norman got one, I got the other. And um, there were there were a bunch of bubbles there. I mean, this was big time oh, yeah. bubbles. South Georgia, great guys, but they just absolutely, you know, they they would have rather seen a football player than a you know beautiful blonde surfer. Yeah. Uh, but 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 Norman and I got to, to chatting that night and, and I said to him, I said, you seem like kind of a prick when I've seen you at golf tournaments. And I said, but you're not a prick today. You're not a prick tonight. And and I just said to him, I said, what's the deal? Cause you know, Greg gets that sometimes. Yeah, And he said, Doug, tomorrow morning when we go down for breakfast, you'll get it. So I said, what do you mean? He goes, just, just, go with me. So we walk into breakfast and it's a buffet and I am finished with my breakfast, almost coffee done. And he's still got people trying to either get an autograph or tell him they know someone that knows him. And, um, and that's when I went, okay, You know, it's unfortunate, but you get so badgered when you're that, not only popular, but he's visually very easy to see. Oh, yeah. That's the shark, right? And he's branded. He's one of the best marketers I think I've ever met. So we got to talking that night, and um, the guys gave me a picture of Augusta National, you know, where the flag is in the front with the clubhouse. At 4 o'clock in the morning, this uh, famous photographer blew this picture up of a snow and it it is the coolest picture and norman was loving it and he said i said hey would you sign this and 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 he signed it and we got to talking about we we were quail hunting that day and it was really fun and he's got his hand eye is just ridiculous right he can shoot quail with a 410 and i need a 12 gauge to bring these (laughs) things down and uh and so he was talking about his son and, and his love for Winchester. And I happened to be, as President Winchester, I had the, the number four Model 23 ever made in my safe. And uh, I said, dude, you want, I can get you a Model 23. And this was a brand new one in the box, number five, I think four or five ever made. Wow. And we started talking about his young son. And um, I said, hey, I've got a friend who uh, makes guns and and we can make a gun for your son so you can kind of get him into it. And so we made his son a custom gun, and to this day, Greg believes that was kind of the beginning of his relationship because he started... It was too early for golf, and there was too much pressure early on golf. Oh, yeah. But they got to shooting, and he loves to shoot. He's got all these guns, but that gun that we made with with his name on the barrel... Oh. Uh, and, and so Greg had always said uh, he's, he's, you know, perfect, great marketer business guy. Every year I get a Christmas card and he'd say, Cal, you're the only guy that I owe one to that won't, won't come. When are you going to ask for it? Right. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, I, I, I didn't, there was nothing I needed, but we, we were going to New Zealand to the hookah lodge and our buddy gets a guys were with they were on Instagram. They're like, Hey, sharks here. I go, oh, I can't wait to see him. They're like, shut up! I go, no, I. And so I walked up to him, and I, I got six, eight feet from, him, and he goes, Mister Winchester, and it was just super cool. And we went to a, uh, uh, we went to a, an active volcano in in uh, with these helicopters with gas masks on. It's a crazy picture, and oh, he and wow. his fiance at the time, wife now, uh, were there, and then um, he had told us about this golf course, and so we played it the next day, where you take a helicopter and you go to the top of the mountain and you you play four holes from twelve thousand feet, and you hit your shot, get in the helicopter go to the green. <laughs> <laughs> And then you go to the next D. I mean, oh, it's like the craziest wow. thing in the world. So one of the greatest trips that uh, that my family and friends have ever took. We, st- we were actually talking about it last night because it will, it, it will never stop talking about it. It was so much fun. But um, he is that kind of guy. You know, he, he's just the last thing he needed to do is remember who I was. And, uh, yeah. and to this day, you know, he does. And. And that says a lot about the character. But he, he did show me one of the reasons that we think superstars are aloof or they're 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 rude. They just can't really have a life unless at certain points they have to turn it off. Yeah. And it's sad, but you can see it. I mean, this is Albany, Georgia, and he can't get a bite of egg. <laughs> you know? It's not good.
0: And he's from Australia. He's not like yeah. Kershaw Walker. No, so that's like, right. Yeah. You know? uh, that's so cool. Well, the second half of the show is where we talk about the things that recharge your batteries, things you like to do in your pastime to charge up because you spend about three hundred days in an airplane, and you lead the league in yep. miles. I mean, yep. it's it's pretty impressive. What's your uh, what's your favorite sports team or favorite you know, favorite sports team or favorite player?
1: Yeah, for me, I've always been an Ohio State Buckeye fan uh, from from way back, and um, that's. That's my favorite sports team. Uh, you know, we've been really lucky because we moved to Nashville right around the year that the Preds and the Titans came. Yeah, we love them both. Um, we went to, we were fortunate to go to the first Preds game, and and oh, my family is just you know rabid. We we just love the Preds, and oh, it's yeah. a great product. It right? is a great product. They figured out family marketing. They figured out how to make this sport. And I can remember. I didn't know anything about hockey growing up in Ohio, but I went to Bowling Green, and we won the CCHA. Oh, wow. I had two roommates, both of which went on to play NHL, won the Hobie Baker, which is the Heisman, and good friends, and so really got into hockey really fast uh, mm-hmm. in college. But when when we would go we to the first couple of Preds games, I can remember just nobody knowing why the hell they're blowing a the whistle, right? And so the Preds, I remember, you probably don't remember this, but they... They'd have 5,000 people on Saturday morning, free coffee and donuts, and the ref would get on the ice and say, okay, this is the blue line. Here's why we're blowing the whistle. And there'd be 4,000 people going, oh, hell, I didn't know why I was blowing the whistle. (laughs) And so I think the Preds fundamentally knew it wasn't a hockey town, and they needed to bring their product and their sport along. And so... Buckeyes are my favorite team, but I have the most respect for how the Preds have managed their customer. Yeah. Because they did it and they knew that this was not football and that people weren't going to come back if they didn't understand why the hell they were blowing the whistle. Yeah. And uh, free coffee and donuts works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it
0: does. Especially when you're in the hometown of Krispy Kreme. Exactly. Yeah, Krispy Kreme. You know, as an Ohio State Buckeye fan, I I was very fortunate to uh interview Eddie George. Mm. But they've had a bunch of great running backs. And I was sitting here thinking, I love college football. I mean, I've been following college football since as hard as I can remember since 79. Mm. So, it's it's a little bit before Archie Griffin. So I know Archie Griffin's the only person to ever won two Heisman trophies. So he's obviously legit superstar. But I I actually th- I forgot to ask Eddie because we got sidetracked in the conversation. Keith Byers might have been one of the greatest running backs that never got any credit. For being so great, uh, he had an awesome NFL career, too, but he was just as dangerous as a pass receiver oh. as he was a running back. But remember,
1: he was tall for a running back, yeah. or at least I remember that, mm-hmm. and uh, had that wingspan, uh, not like a typical running back. Yeah, he was He was awesome. Um, there's been so many. I mean, uh, no when kidding. you think about it, uh, Bobby Hoyne was the quarterback for Eddie that the when they played together at Ohio State and Bobby was my step nephew oh. and so Bobby's grandfather was my stepfather which is Wally Post who played for the Cincinnati Reds oh, wow. Wally had 40 homers in 100 let's see he had 40 homers in 100 what did he have 109 RBIs in 1955 so i mean this guy was an absolute stud wow. he was kind of the hometown hero and my father passed away um, my dad and Wally played golf together all the time. And his wife, unfortunately, passed away cancer. And my mom and Wally remarried. So it was oh, no really kidding. a cool story. And no, that that's awesome. how we got hooked up with Bobby. And Bobby played for the Oakland. And yeah. he played for Philadelphia as well as a quarterback. But Bobby and Eddie were a strong, strong quarterback-running back combo. And no, that yeah. was really fun to see those guys back in the Ohio State day. Yeah.
0: Was that your, is that your favorite team? Or What's your favorite team from
1: Ohio State? That team, that team. yeah, and unfortunately, they lost to Michigan that year, mm-hmm. and that they were they were unstoppable. I thought I have to tell you, I've fallen kinda in love with the team this year, um, I really think they've done a great job with that team, and I don't know if you got a chance to to see number two, uh you know the defensive guy that the miss i mean man. he's just a force, but the quarterback has done a great job the running back, i mean I, everybody there i I, I don't follow it as closely as I used to, but I'll tell you what. I, I am uh, I am predicting. I'm going to New Orleans because I'm hoping to see the Buckeyes for the final game. I think
0: they'll play LSU. I think I those hope, are the two best teams. I hope so. I was, I'm was i a Penn Stater to the death. So, I mean, last week when they played, I kind of went in knowing. Cause first of all, it was at Ohio State. And I probably thought the last two years – Penn State was the better team and lost by one both yeah. times. Yeah, crazy. But I didn't think that they were the better team this year. And I was wondering, maybe we're going to get a little. We got to turn the table. We finally yeah. got to win one where we shouldn't have won. Yeah. Well, James but, is, but, uh, is
1: pretty handy too. So yeah, you know he he he's, uh, he's you got to got to worry about him coming into town.
0: Yeah. But I mean, they look like they're the most complete team.
1: Yep.
0: Because I think their defense is a little better than LSU's, and the offense has ever been as good as LSU's. Yep. I don't really. I'll be shocked if Clemson gets by either one of those two. Um, And then, actually, I don't even really think of the the fourth team being all that important. I think Alabama's going to lose to Auburn this week without Tua. And that's going to kind of throw things into a a massive quandary because who are they going to put in? Yeah, Georgia's really got the, if they want, they can keep it right. It's up to them. Yeah, if they have to beat LSU, I think. If they beat LSU in the SEC Championship, LSU's probably not going to fall out. And and it'll be Clemson, Ohio State, and then – Georgia and Clemson Uh, and uh, so I think that'll be I love college football man I just I wish they'd move it to like eight teams but I get the end of the day I guess last week was a playoff game because that eliminated Penn State and Oregon yep you know and then you know we got Alabama Auburn so that that could eliminate Alabama and then you got the, the championship games from the conferences and then bang it's football's over. I've yeah. so disappointed. <laughs> and it's not warm <laughs> enough to play golf. <laughs> uh, no, I got this big lull. I look forward to Kapaloo and seeing somebody. Exactly. Somebody's warm and not me. Oh man. What's your favorite music?
1: You know, I've been a, a Coldplay U2 guy my whole life. Um I just have always loved those guys. And um and John Butler probably would the John Butler be, Trio. Yeah.
0: No kidding you know I right think on.
1: he's in in my estimation the best guitar player and I say that not having seen Hendrix or any of those guys but it Clapton obviously yep. is a stud but but I think I think he's to me one of the most exciting and I got a chance I've seen him twice at the Ryman and and I always do stupid stuff to get the 50 yard line front front seat oh, yeah. and uh, Johnny B uh and I just it's it's my terry is always she'll go with me but she'll say oh this is gonna be embarrassing you're gonna be crazy uh, i just love this guy and i, I was that able to take awesome. my roommate who won actually the new york stadium two years in a row in new york when he was a, a junior senior he was my roommate in college and he played on the uh asian and and uh European tour, but he uh, he does what you do. He has a Gary Battistoni teaching center. Uh-huh. And he's just a great, great guy. I brought him down and and we went together because it was... He introduced me to Super Tramp and a bunch of things when I oh, went to college yeah. that I had... Music I had... He had opened my mind to a bunch of things. Yeah. A bunch of music. Um, Alan Parsons' project. Crazy. Yeah. You know, 16-piece yeah. orchestra. Um, he He was really... Uh, his diversity of music helped me a lot because I was pretty much straight down the middle with Tom Petty and, you know, rock and roll. And, yeah. But you two and Coldplay to me are, uh, are the two of the best bands ever.
0: Coldplay just, they just don't put out anything bad. No, they just deliver it every and he,
1: single he, time. I mean, Chris does, he earns his money. You, oh, know, yeah. you see Bruce do it, you see all these guys, but we were able to take Chris Cahill to uh, for his birthday with his buddies, and we had great seats. And we didn't realize it at the time; we were probably ten, twelve rows back at Bridgestone, and the, his piano was literally eight feet from us. That he walked down and would play. And That I mean, he was incredible in yeah. concert. Yeah,
0: that was the X and the Y, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's been they haven't been here in a while. No, because I saw. Did you see him at the Ryman? Yes. Oh. Huh. There's two shows that have made me cry. That's one of them. That was so pure.
1: We're so lucky that oh. they want to play there. Right? Yeah, it's almost their bucket list, and we're sitting here saying, "How are they here?" Yeah. Right? It's it, that is we are so lucky to have that place because people want that for their their bucket list, and yeah. we're just lucky to be there.
0: No kidding. Oh, that was such an awesome show. There's something about the Ryman that's so spectacular. But man, he plays the piano so. Beautifully. He's an underrated total musician because he's a great guitar player, too. And, I, I mean, I, I put him in a very rare air. I'm a, I'm a lyric guy. I'm a guitar and lyric guy. But I like the stories. Mm-hmm. They tell awesome stories. They do. And uh, yep. you, too, as well. You, too. Well,
1: Bono and edge are not a bad combo. Yeah, <laughs> not, it, it,
0: you know, so it's funny. Like, I grew up in the era, in my formative years, it was Guns N' Roses or U2. And when I grew up in my, in my hometown, you were either a rebel in the Axl Rose kind of way or you were a rebel in the Bono kind of way but my friends if you were a Guns fan you didn't listen to U2 and if you're a U2 fan you hated Guns and Roses I didn't really come into liking U2 until I got to college but they are uh, they have to be one of the 10 greatest bands of all time U2 historically speaking
1: yeah I have I've actually been amazed at how long if you think about the longevity of the the product, music, a band itself. Isn't it amazing yeah. how some of these guys are still crushing it yeah. and doing beautiful stuff? I mean, I, I when I grew up, I did not think I'd be seeing the same folks as I age, yeah. you know, being there. You know, like what, what I mean what vince has done with the eagles is super cool right? oh my gosh no doubt. he's one of the greatest and and what a great fit that's been but but we're you know we're lucky to live here right nashville's yeah. not just not just country right it's, no it's music period
0: yeah what's the greatest concert you've ever been to
1: <laughs> yeah the and johnny johnny my first johnny butler uh, yeah that's awesome. I, that, that was the best i had ever seen and i was fortunate to to see i've been fortunate to see a bunch of really good ones but that was i Coldplay at bridgestone with the seats and the fact that we had uh, our daughter Paige, my son chris and his best five friends were there um Terry's still mad because she gave her ticket up to Paige, <laughs> uh, but that was pr- those would be my top two probably. Yeah,
0: that's that's two great. And ones you right
1: know, there. you remember like uh, Dayton, Ohio sticks, right? I remember yeah. that, and I remember some of the early ones that that were formative. But but man, Johnny Butler at the Ryman, and, and uh, yeah, Cole Cole plays hard to beat. Yeah, no question about it.
0: When you when you think about the your favorite golf courses. What's your about Rushmore of golf courses?
1: I've been really lucky. I haven't played them all, but I've played a few. And, And I remember in 1983, I was a sales rep. And my biggest customer was in Cleveland, Tennessee. I was living in Atlanta. And he said, meet me for lunch at this place. And I went to the honors. And we had lunch with Jack. And we went out and played golf. And I called Terry. Not on my cell because I didn't have one, and I just remember saying, "That's the best golf course I've ever played," and and I will be a member there someday. That was my goal. Yeah, and I still that's still Mount Rushmore for me. That that's a rock. I, I love that place, and, yeah. and I love um, everything about it. It's it's simple. It's not overdone you know, Hendrick is an incredible yeah, pro. Hendrick's awesome. Everything about that place is, is, is my favorite. You know, I have so many great memories and I'll probably go down there with six or seven groups a year and it's, um, it's a magical place. So it's not just the golf course there. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, I was able to play with, uh, so David Savick, which is Pandle's, uh son, played at Georgia with my roommate who transferred. And so Pandle was Nicholas's... There was a quarterback at Ohio State, and he was Nicholas's AT&T guy, oh. champion. He he partnered with Nicholas, best friend. And so David and Wayne Player, Gary's son, and Wayne Smith and I played... We played Murfield, Scioto, and the golf club in a three-day stretch. Wow. And I have to tell you, Scioto was really... I mean, Murfield... I was able to go to the first one when I was very young, and I went to every tournament. I love Jack. That's one of my favorite all times. time. But Scioto surprised me. Really? I, I was really, really blown away by that. Uh, it's it's a really it's a for my golf game I I just love Scioto. so Interesting. I would say that and then you just you know I've been blessed to play Augusta and and Cypress and and a bunch of them Cypress is is just hard to beat it's um, so good you know it's it's everything about it is amazing I remember when we teed off um, there were there was a, only one other group there there were two holes out of us and it was Clint. Cosner and Charles Schwab pretty strong threesome. <laughs> that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good threesome right there. And I remember Bob uh, Tom Watson and Murphy, I played four times a year with those guys for for ten years because so because they they did corporate outings. That's oh, how we sold chemicals. Cool. Is we go to every great golf course with Watson and Murphy, and and Murph was on the Odyssey early staff, and he got the first. He got two prototype two ballers. And the first time, he gave me one of his, and the first time I ever had ever used it was at Cyprus. And I made everything. I still have that part. Yeah. And it wasn't an official stamped odyssey. It was an early prototype. prototype. And everybody's looking at it going, what in the hell? They all thought it was illegal, yeah. right? But that was my friend. And that, we played Pebble the next day. And I, that's as close to channeling Snedeker as I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I probably still shot 85. Yeah. But Cypress Point is such an amazing venue. I personally think, I've had some people like Harry Taylor came on here. He loves Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. And he says he believes Pebble Beach is better than Cypress Point. And then the very next week I did Ned Michaels, who was on the radio show with me. He played on the tour for a long time. Played at Vanderbilt with Brandt. And he's like, oh, it's Cypress Point all the way. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I kind of go hole by hole. I have a little 18-hole match play where I take the first hole of each of them and line them up. And I had Cypress Point winning two up. And I was like – but I remember both times I played it, it was a per- – both days were perfect. Mid-60s, light wind, maybe 8 miles per hour, 10 miles per mm-hmm. hour. And both times I'm hitting my second shot into 14, and I see eminent death out over the ocean. And we get to the 15th tee, and I made bogey on 14, and the the people that were with made par. So they teed off first on 15. The first guy hit an 8-iron onto the green. The second guy stood up with an 8-iron, backed off, grabbed a 7-iron, and before he even hit, he hit a 6-iron. And by the time I got to the 15th tee, I hit 4-iron. Oh, my goodness. It was blowing so hard. It was unbelievable. So I hit driver on 16, and it was a full (laughs) torque. Excuse me. (coughs) We'll be able to edit that out. (laughs) You get choked. You get choked up talking about it. I did get choked up talking about it. I hit driver full smoke it and, and barely, then... barely gets there, and I make a par on on sixteen both times. It full smoke for you is large. Yeah, it was blistered. And then on the probably one of the greatest shots I've ever hit in my life. I hit a on seventeen. I hit a four iron from one forty one into the teeth. Over that black. little
1: strip of wall. Oh yeah, the there. pin
0: was front left. Yep. And I hit like it barely got higher than the flag stick. It was really one of the greatest stingers I've ever hit to like a foot. And like the guys wouldn't give it to me because the wind's blowing so hard. Like you're gonna have a hard time even putting it. Uh, but it was it was awesome. You ever played Seminole? Yeah. What yeah. do you think of Seminole?
1: You know, I love the whole that 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 area, that it, the, the everything about Seminole is awesome, right? All the, you you just you 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 can experience the whole thing. The golf course, I think, is a kind of golf course that you you have to learn to appreciate. I think there's a you know you can you could play Seminole once and say I don't get it, yeah. Yeah. But I think if you play it uh, a few times and you're lucky enough to do that, it's it's got everything. And I've had friends tell me you know you really have to do that, yeah. Um, but it's – that whole area down there is special, right? Yeah. It, it really is. No so. doubt.
0: And when you played Augusta, like I found Augusta to be the hardest inland golf course in the world and because you only get 18 flat shots. And you get multiple double negatives. Ball above your feet, but downhill lie. Mm-hmm. So is this going to pull or am I going to heal it? Which, and I shot 76-76 the two times I played it. And the first time I played it, I was like – that was so hard, man! Did I make an excellent career decision? I, mean, I, pl- I birdied every par five, and 18, and shot
1: 76. Damn, that's a good birdie on 18. Oh, that's a tough hole.
0: Oh my God, it's so hard. That's like a one, good round. I'm thinking to myself, Snedeker just shot 65, yeah. and the greens were rolling like 13 and a half. So that's 10 shots better than me on a way harder golf course. Multiply that times four. That's beating me by 40
1: and it yeah. is one of those where you know i remember the first time i played it i had a 56 and 56 degree and i said to myself i need more than that yeah because the flop you have to have that shot because i'm not good enough to miss it on the correct side <laughs> as you have witnessed yeah and uh yeah it's it, there's something about that first tee though when you get there and the oh. whole thing you know the the the
0: it's overwhelming. The that first time. Ca- oh, it, the first time. It is I was more nervous there than I've been in any tournament that I've ever played in. Yep. And of course I'm standing on the tee box with John Elway, my my idol oh, for football. Wow. Right. So it's uh and I didn't play with him, but he was getting the group behind it. We were the first to play the golf course after it was tiger proof to five.
1: Oh wow. last time I was there, I've been fortunate, I think i have played five or six, but the last time I was there. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald was there, and I, and he was playing with Bones, uh, Mix Old Caddy, uh-huh. and I have to tell you, um, wow, does he have a golf swing? You know, you, you, it's hard to believe as as muscular as he is and built. I mean, he's just jacked, but yeah. he's got a shoulder turn that is the real deal. Yeah, um, it, he's it, a super athlete. It's a really cool swing. Uh, he uh, he was fun to watch. He played in front of us, and and he's he's got a great swing.
0: Yeah. That's so so funny that you say that because I just saw a picture of him with Tiger, and Tiger's not a small guy; he sh- just was towering yeah. over Tiger Woods. And the people that don't get it—if you're not around NFL players—the smallest guy is a giant. It's amazing. I mean, that, Larry Fitzgerald is one large dude, and he's yeah. a wide receiver. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. That's crazy. Well, I'm a huge lover of wine and I've come to understand that you might also enjoy some, <laughs> some wine. Is there a particular wine and or region that you really go after more than another?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny when we, when Terry and I were, were moved into the house we're in now we've been in probably 12 or 13 years, that was my first wine cellar. Uh, I had not had one to that point. And, uh, and it was a really cool one. We didn't build it, but the the guy we bought the house from, the folks we bought the house from, had built it. It's a, it's in the a, a basement which yeah. is hard in, in in the guest house and it's a really cool setup. And I got so fired up, but literally I'm from St. Henry, Ohio, and if it didn't have a screw top, I didn't know what it was, right? <laughs> Mad Dog or Boone's Farm, <laughs> which one? Right. Well, it's Thursday. Must be yeah, Boone's. Boone's Farm. That's right. And uh and so I didn't really know that much about wine. Um in more than I did but not that much and I have a friend who it's just one of those things where every time I was with him every time he would order something whether it was a pinot or something from you know burgundy or I just I couldn't believe how much I liked it he just knew yeah. what I liked and it wasn't that it was the most expensive one which I've always been impressed by yeah. you know it's easy to say well that's the most expensive one it must be good and then trick your friends into believing it's good right whether yeah. it is or not and I I said to him why don't you load my cellar? And then all I ask is that you tell me what why you bought what you bought. And so he front-loaded it, and he wow. went out himself, and then he took me through why he bought this Italian reason, why he bought this French, and why... And, and it was such a cool experience, because every time I'd take a bottle, I'd think about him, and he had a little book with notes and oh, things. Yeah. And so I've probably gravitated... Not probably. I have gravitated to the big cabs from California, uh-huh. and the Backstopper stuff is just ridiculous to me. I think Tour and Hobbs. I think Paul Hobbs Backstopper right now is is the best wine. My favorite wine of all time. Really? I, I cannot believe. Just it's just so good, and and wow. for my palate. And again, yeah. everybody's different. Everybody's different. And I, and and I'd say a friend of ours has introduced my wife, Terry and I to the white burgundies of the world. Uh-huh. And we didn't have an appreciation for that. And it's really hard to drink Chardonnay <laughs> after a really good <laughs> white burgundy. Oh yeah. So he has ruined us. Uh, <laughs> no. There's a lot of Chardonnay that's going to sit there. Oh my God. There's uh, no doubt. Yeah. So I'd say those are, I'd say a big cab from Beckstoffer and, uh, and the white Burgundies from France are are two of the best now. There's, I think, right now there's some incredible Pinot happening. Oh and, yeah, and, and to me, that's where you can really have some fun. Um, so that's fun too. But but it, if I had to do one, it would be a big Cab from uh, from Beckstaff. Yeah,
0: the greatest Cab I've ever had is from Schaefer Hillside Select, yes. ninety seven and ninety nine. Oh my god. Yeah, and but, you know they all have like. There's all these different little sub regions in Napa Valley, you know, and the Beckstoffer, Rutherford Hills, you know, they got the Rutherford Dust and you yep. got this, you know, the Stag's Leap area. Oh, it's so good because it's so different. And it's obviously it's partly soil, it's partly the winemaking ideas that they have in Napa versus what they'd have in Bordeaux. But I just find it so fascinating that you could have like a Joseph Phelps insignia. Yep. That's.
1: So, so Yaz and those guys just got – for we. I took them down the honors, and Sonny and Yaz and those guys gave me a 2012 Mag of Insignia. Nice. Which is – that is one of the best, I think, red wines there. there I, I was so blown away. That is such a beautiful bottle. I oh. cannot wait to uh, sit in my room and drink the whole thing by myself. No, <laughs> have friends over. <laughs> yeah. But
0: I just find it so fascinating that you could take essentially – O'Brien or or Lafitte or you know any of the big dogs Latour, sure. and I could have the basically the exact same makeup of the grapes in the in the blend, and the and the Joseph Phelps insignia will taste so radically different than Bordeaux, and that's what I it's the art of it that it's just amazing. totally fascinates yeah. me. It's like how could it be the exact same thing and be so influenced by somebody else's wine knowledge. And what to barrel it and how long to barrel it, when to put the Merlot into the Cabernet, yeah. you know, when to put the Malbec in, When are we even going to put Malbec in? How do you know? Like that kind of stuff is so fascinating to me. And and I was so fortunate because I had a chance to take a wine appreciation class in mm-hmm. college. And that's where I've, I fell in love with wine. You know, thinking that I signed up for a free buzz right. and literally the first class I take, I'm like, man, this is going to be the greatest class ever. And to understand the, the food line pairing pieces are really cool. And you know, when you get around people that are that do deep dive nerd stuff, you know, and they're out there picking the mushrooms off the field that's gonna come from the same vineyard mm-hmm. and you know, and, and make it so that you're eating a, a steak from the, the farm right up the street and the the vegetables and whatever there are people that really get into that and i would have never really bought into that big of a deal until you're around somebody that really knows what the heck they're talking about and then you realize why the europeans have done what they've done for so long which is wine is just a part of the meal it's not a it's not an alcoholic beverage it's part of the uh it's part of the whole menu
1: yeah and they they you know we don't even know how to relax and and eat here right (laughs) they they get it right just like they get august right they don't work in august they're pretty smart about that yeah um we we don't have that figured out but i i do you know it's funny i i it's the moment that you share like we we were with this huge supplier of ours who who's from taiwan he and his wife he's 74 his wife's 71 they're just beautiful people we were out in vegas and he wanted to treat us the other night and he bought a bottle of Opus, 2012. It's a great one. Oh, right? heck yeah. And and that was his treat to thank us for the business. And, and we had a great meal and, and we have a great partnership. But at the end, I asked the waiter for a Sharpie because I wanted them to sign the bottle and I took it home with me because, and it drives Terry crazy because I have all these bottles that are all signed, but it's it's my way of saying, I remember when we played darts and Chris won at the end or I remember yeah. when Terry's father and mother were here and we drank this bottle of wine. And so to me, it's the experiences that wine brings and then I just have to I have to have people sign the bottle so I, I can reflect idea. and remember. Uh and that's important to me. Oh, I, I'd love yeah. that.
0: I love that idea. Mm-hmm. I have never thought about that. But I hold those memories in my head, but my goodness would that be so cool to have man, I'm stealing that.
1: Yeah, and and get the sharp, get the 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 silver sharpie, because that looks really good on a bottle cab. Yeah, um, and you can do the label, whatever, but just the date and and a, and, a, and the signatures, and you can just go back and remember, and you you remember what you had maybe for dinner, but you really the moment is the moment. you know is important.
0: And that's where that's where one of the things that I just I want to get really good at myself. Is that, you know, at forty six, I just made the turn, hopefully, you know, so to speak. And I got my kids, you know, they're fourteen and eleven and I got all kinds of cool stuff to to take in over the next X amount of years totally. Totally with them. But it, it really it really does elevate a moment. Wine does have something about it that it steals up a moment that you never forget. And I just never wanna be I'm not the kind of guy that takes a lot of pictures but i'm a guy that really holds memories. Yep. And to look back on them like on moments like that, that would be a that would be an awesome gift for sure. Final question. I always throw something out there that's a little off off the wall when it comes to, you know, all the other all topics that we talked about. One of my favorite uh guys that i follow on social media's name is Jason Silva. He's in, involved in the Flow Genome Project which is basically just understanding the highest level of human performance, what's going on, and how to hack states to get there and access that talent that we have that everybody's chasing. And we're getting we're getting closer to being able to dial it up when we want it, which will be a pretty cool place to be. But he states that in every life there are three deaths. There's the day that you find out you're going to die. There's the day that you die. And then the final death is when they no longer mention your name. mm what is it that you're doing for yourself, your family, your legacy when it comes to your your business, et cetera, to live for as long as you possibly can
1: that's interesting i you know i think I think you live longer if you don't make it about yourself, yeah, absolutely. I think companies and families and friends um, remember companies, remember servant leaders, families, remember someone who cared about them. I don't think it's, it's anything that you do. I think it's what you do for others. Yeah. And I think it, you know, the candle will probably go a bit longer if you can think about it that way. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, in the end, what we're here for. So to me, um, just trying to make sure that, I, I really want everybody at Hillman today to be the best they can. And I always, I spend a lot of time making sure that when they go home at night, they've got something left for their families and that they understand that both are important. Yeah. We we just lose perspective so bad. Yeah. There's, it's not that big a deal. Running a business is not that complicated. Satisfying customers is not that complicated. We just make it too hard. Yeah. And I think if you can simplify life, simplify business, I'm not saying it's simple. I'm just saying simplify it. Then I think there's more time to be the father or be the the son or be the husband or spouse that you really need to be. And in the end, that's how you, you know, the flame will last a little bit longer probably.
0: Yeah, no question. Well, I can tell you right now, I've been in Nashville since 1997, and the first time I heard your name uh, was, I think it was Stuart Smith, mm. and he said, you really need to meet this guy named Doug Cahill. I'm like, great, awesome. So then I actually get the fortunate opportunity to work with your game, and we spent some time together, and literally about every year, I'll be somewhere. And I'll be I'll be talking to similar stuff like this, just trying to get to know people and wanting to know what makes people tick. And I'll be just like, hey man, there's somebody you need to meet. This guy'd be really good for you. Doug Cahill. (laughs) This Doug Cahill right here. (laughs) Uh, So just in case you don't know, in this town, you're making that kind of impact because literally everywhere I go, it's hilarious. Your name pops up as a person that I need to run into. Uh, Whether it be for Defiance Fuel or whether it be for golf or knowing somebody in the golf industry or a golf club or, you know, business or ideas about, you know, you helped me get into Harding Academy, which was Mm. when I. Beautiful place. Yeah, great place. And I'm just like, wow, everywhere I go, there you are. And that right there is something that I would like to leave for myself, which is that I'm helpful enough not just in golf, but in life, to make an impact on people so that they know that it was more than a golf lesson to me. So, and I can tell you right now that you do that because you are you are on a very small precipice of the people that I get a chance to know and be around. That everybody says the kind of things that you'd like to have said about yourself. Mm. So, I congratulate you for that. And thank you very much for coming oh, on The merge. see always you. Always great to see you, buddy. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to thank you. See you. Yep. Callaway's new Apex Irons redefine players' irons. Unmatched feel, distance, and control have been forged into perfection to deliver category-defining performance. Apex Irons are the ultimate forged players' distance iron. Callaway's 360 face cup generates industry-leading distance and unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. Tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch, trajectory, and delivers tremendous control. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one irons in golf.